different perspective on the first service. I understand that people come to the first service because they want to get it over with. <laughs> not, not really, not really. That's it. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to be here and to, and to share from Scripture and God's Word and what's on my heart today with, with many of you. Uh, it, it's an honor and a privilege, and Aaron, thank you for sharing what in years gone by we called pulpit time. We don't have a pulpit anymore, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this. And I also want to thank the, our musicians. They do it because they love doing what they do. I want you, the, the ones that are up here and others that help out, want you to know we appreciate the hard work that you put into it, and it just didn't happen overnight uh, with what you do. I love my wife. The, the other day, matter of fact, it was a week ago Friday, we were driving down the road on our way to the Chesterfield Crisis Pregnancy Center banquet hosted by Carla, and she asked me for my phone because she had forgotten hers at home, and she needed to send a text to our daughter. Well, she sent the text but she sent it to the Thursday men's Bible study group that I attend. Well, here's what she wrote. So, we're headed to the dinner we have to go to, and I did get my makeup on this time, but I forgot my phone. Just in case you need me, call Bill. Love you. And then Wally Hill texted, well, his makeup did look good on Thursday. <laughs> and Bob Clock chimed in with, Bill, I think a soft peach rouge would be your best bet. <laughs> well, that's what happens when somewhere along the line, the message somehow, someway goes off track. And down through history, the church at times has gotten off track. The Apostle Paul wrote one of his greatest letters to the Ephesian church. And then 30 to 40 years later, the Apostle John was instructed to write to that Ephesian church. And it's found in Revelation chapter 2. And if you have your, either your Bibles or your Bible on your phone, and we'll follow along, we'll have some scriptures today that, that you can look up and follow along. And here's what God instructed the angel to write to the Ephesus church. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand was the church. Go back to just one chapter and it defines that. So what was their first love and what is our first love? Well, we can best define that by looking at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus gave this answer to a question he was asked by those that were not his friend. about what the greatest commandment was. And this is what he said in verse 37, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So when you love the Lord your God, you will also love His Word and the church. Let me pray before we launch into this. Father, thank You for what You've done for us. You created this world perfect as it was in the beginning. And then you sent your Son into an imperfect world to be the sacrifice and to cover and wash away those sins. And today, as we come to you and we look at your Scripture, we ask your presence, your Holy Spirit, to lead and guide us in the things that are said and done here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the title for today's message is a history lesson. So, I want to ask a question, and I need your participation in this. If when you were going to school, if history was your favorite subject, please raise your hand. Hold it up high. History was your favorite subject. I'm actually going to do a count. One. We have one. He's not sure over here. One, one and a half. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Thirteen. Is it safe to say we have more than thirteen? Way more than thirteen in here? Well, the first service was the same. Uh, not very many people list history as their favorite subject. I so disliked history that two summers running, I took American history and world history in summer school, so I only had to take it for six weeks rather than for nine months. But I have learned to love our country's history, 
as well as God's history in the world and through the church. Not many know about the history and the background of Chester Christian Church and its historical tie to what is called the Restoration Movement. If you've heard that phrase before, the Restoration Movement, uh, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, quite a few, uh, a lot more than like history, have heard the phrase, the Restoration Movement. Well, that's what we're going to talk about just a little bit today. We're going to give you a brief history of the start of what's called the Restoration Movement, of which we at Chester Christian Church are part of that heritage. So let me take you back to England, uh, to the family of Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell uh, was raised in a, a church, actually it was the Church of England, but he became a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. And actually, he was not just a Presbyterian, but he was a seceder, old light, anti-burger Presbyterian. You see how fractured the Presbyterian church was back then during that day? And that has happened to many different uh, church groups over the years. Well, Thomas was advised by his physician because of a health condition that an ocean voyage would do him well, so he decided that he would come to America, and he did that in 1807, a little over 200 years ago. Uh, and he went to the Philadelphia Presbytery, which was the governing body here in the United States, uh, the 13 colonies, uh, was the governing body for the Presbyterian Church, and they assigned him to go to western Pennsylvania and to preach there. Well, it was not long before Thomas got into trouble. And here's how he got into trouble. One Sunday was the Sunday for having communion. And he allowed and invited non-Presbyterians to participate and to take communion. The word got back to the presbytery in Philadelphia, and they actually put him on trial because he had broken the rules. And after a trial in which he was invited and he came and, and was able to speak on his own behalf, they voted to censure him, and they said, we will no longer give you any appointments to preach because you opened up communion to non-Presbyterians. Well, he did like living in America, and so in letters to his family, he invited them to come to this country, and in 1809, his family, including his oldest son, Alexander, did so. Unbeknownst to father and son, Alexander, back in England had had the same problem in dealing with communion. That they actually, in England, you received a token the week or the month before you were to have communion, and you had to present that token to be able to take communion, which said you stood in good standing with the presbytery. 
The real problem, as they saw it, was the emphasis on man-written documents to govern the church, such as confessions and creeds. And increasingly, father and son were drawn to what does the Scripture say? And why do we not use the Bible only as our authority rather than the words of men and the written words of men? And thus was born a phrase, where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible's silent, we are silent. And another one which I, which I love, we are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. The Campbells, refusing to elevate man's words over God's, were forced to leave the Presbyterian church. They aligned with the Baptist church with, because of problems, again dealing with Scripture, uh, they were asked to leave. These godly men started using the phrase, let us restore the church of today to the church born on the day of Pentecost, found in Acts chapter 2. Now, that doesn't mean that they had to dress like they dressed back then, but it was the things that they practiced uh, in the churches back then. But the Campbells found out that they were not alone in their thinking, that they found other preachers who were having the same problems. Barton W. Stone, who grew up in, in North Carolina and went to school there and then eventually came to Virginia to preach, he had some of the same issues and ideas. Walter Scott, he was a Baptist who personified the role of the evangelist as he traveled from uh, city to city and, and county to county preaching. And then one of my favorites was a guy by the name of Raccoon John Smith. Uh, he was as colorful as his name was. I'll tell you one story about Raccoon John Smith. Uh, he, he grew up in the Baptist church uh, back in the 18, early 1800s, and he wanted to be a Christian. And he wanted to be a member of the church. But back then, the Baptist church required for you to be a member and to be baptized that you had to have a religious experience and you had to share this religious experience with the leaders of the church. Well, he didn't have one. So guess what he did? He made one up. And they accepted him. They let him become a member, and he was baptized. Well, when he heard this other group that, uh, of preachers, he fell right in with them because he was of like mind. And they were just five of many, many others down through the ages. And those churches began to grow in, in the eastern part of the United States and as, as far out as Texas and, and Colorado and Kentucky and Tennessee and up north and here in Virginia. <clears throat> These men, none of whom wished to start any new denomination, simply wanted God's church to be His church patterned after the church of the New Testament. And as they sought to restore that church to what the early church was, you can see where that phrase, the restoration movement, came from. And that's the heritage that Chester Christian Church is a part of.
So for the rest of the time, I'm going to share with you five characteristics of the New Testament church simply based on the teachings of the Bible, which we at Chester strive to be and to follow. And the first one, and maybe one of the most important, is that we use the Bible only as our authority. Psalm 119, verse 105. Uh, I learned this scripture when I was third or fourth grade. I don't remember. That's too long ago to remember exactly. But from Vacation Bible School, back then it was a 10-day Vacation Bible School during the morning hours from 9 o'clock to noon. And I still remember Mrs. Donnelly was my teacher, and she taught this verse, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's the King James translation. I grew up in the country, farming area, and as the youngest of, of five kids, it was my job after supper to take the scraps out and give them to the pigs. Now, we didn't have any outside light. And do you know how fast an eight-year-old boy can run when he's scared to death? And I'd run out there, and I'd throw those things in the, in the, over the fence for the pigs, and I'd run back in. But, you know, if I took a flashlight with me, and you see what the light does to illuminate your path and to illuminate your feet, it took all my fear away. I just didn't run as fast when I had the light. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 4, Jesus is now going to answer the devil as the devil has tempted him. He's gone out into the wilderness prior to the start of his ministry, and he's fasted. For 40 days he's fasted, and now he's hungry, and so... The devil comes to tempt him, and he tempts him by saying, okay, you're hungry, but what's, what was Jesus actually starting to do? He was actually starting to starve to death. And so the devil plays on that and says, hey, take these stones. You can do it. Turn them into bread. Well, Jesus turned it back on him by saying, man does not live by bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the Bible is very important to us as a book of authority. Back in the 70s, uh, I used to preach at a country church in, in Franklin County, Virginia. Anybody ever hear of the town of Penhook, Virginia? Well, a couple of you might have heard of it. Uh, Penhook has a post office, a country store, a community building, and I think there's a Methodist church there. It's on Route 40 that goes east to west in Virginia, and I live seven miles from there. Well, they had in the public schools in Franklin County a program that taught the Bible to elementary school kids, grades four, five, and six. And somehow I found out about it, and I went to the meeting because they needed some more teachers, and I signed a contract from the National Council of Churches. Now, 
The National Council of Churches, I've never been aligned with them. They represent the largest, uh, still today, group of church, Protestant churches in the United States, and they're, uh, no conservative churches are part of it. It's a liberal organization. But I had to sign this contract in order to teach the Bible, and I had to agree that I would use the Bible only as my textbook, and that I would teach it in a non-denominational, non-sectarian manner, which is exactly what I wanted to do. That's one of the things that uh, Chester Christian Church does and is a part of. A phrase that the Restoration Movement picked up and it supposedly came from the 15th century. Some have said it came from the Catholic Church. Some said it came from the, the Protestant Reformation movement. The, the, who quoted it first? It's a bit murky, but I like it. It says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. So we use the Bible only as our authority here at Chester Christian Church. A second thing we do is, what's the name that we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians that attend here. I remember a conversation that I had with a, a neighbor. I hadn't been a Christian very long, and I was, was telling her that, uh, of my conversion and how I'd, I'd come to know Jesus and that I'd been baptized uh, uh, by the preacher from the church there. And she said, okay, I, I agree that you've become a Christian, but what kind of Christian are you? You have to attach something else to your name. So what else are you? You know what I'm talking about. And I said, I'm, I'm just a Christian. Is it that hard for us to believe that you can just be a Christian without attaching any other label to your name? So, what is the name that we wear? Is it not the name of Christ? Do you know how many times the word Christian is listed in the Scriptures? Well, when I was in, in Bible college studying to be a preacher, I worked for one of the local businessmen that went to the Elizabeth City Church of Christ, uh, Jay Witten Sawyer. Uh, you might remember the Jay Witten Sawyer. He owned a cemetery memorial business, and I helped set tombstones all over eastern North Carolina uh, in the cemetery. It got me through college. Uh, I was telling, sharing someone after the first service, minimum wage back when I was in college was a dollar and a quarter. Can you imagine that? Mr. Sawyer paid me two dollars an hour. And if he didn't have any work for me, he'd send me up to the church to cut the grass for $2 an hour, well above minimum wage. Uh, got me through college. So, we were somewhere in eastern North Carolina setting a stone, and there was an old gentleman there in the cemetery, and he came over to see what we were doing. And when he found out I was studying to be a preacher, he said, well, you know how many times the word Christian is in the Bible, don't you? And I said, uh, no. No. <laughs> because I didn't. And he said, well, 
three times. And then he went on to quote all three of those from memory. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Then in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, uh, Paul's been telling his story to King Agrippa. And King Agrippa finally replies to him, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then finally in 1 Peter 4, 16, where Peter says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear His name. Granted that that name was given as a term of derision, well, look at those Christians, those Christ followers, as they were persecuted by not just uh, Jews, but also by uh, Gentile alike. You know, no one says that it's wrong for us to use just the name Christian, and that's what we do here. We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. Still rings true today. A third characteristic of the New Testament church is we baptize by immersion those that believe and repent of their sins and confess the name of Christ. You know, in the Scripture, in the original language, the word for baptism or baptize is the Greek word baptizo. And up until the King James Version of the Bible was written, that word was translated. But the King James Version, they didn't translate it. It was considered a transliteration. Baptize or baptism sounds a lot like that Greek word baptizo. And the reason they didn't is because the Church of England, which... King James was the head of the church, the 1607 version of the King James Bible, authorized uh, Bible, it says, they didn't practice immersion. They practiced sprinkling. And so for them to have translated this immersion, the Greek word means to dip or to plunge or to immerse. Immerse, such as if you were washing your clothes, or if you put the bucket down in the, in the well to pull up a bucket full of water, or if you were to what we would call baptize someone. And secondly with that has to do with, with children. Now, sprinkling, there is, a, there is a Greek word for to sprinkle, and it's the word rontidzo. That's not baptizo, is it? Two different words in the Greek. Acts 2.38, turn there with me. This is the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost. Peter eventually stands up and begins preaching and shares a message about Christ, about what happened to him, how he came, and this was by Old Testament prophecy that this would happen. And while he's speaking about the death and the burial of Jesus, 
the crowd was so shaken in their heart because of what they had been part of in causing this to happen that they actually cried out and stopped his sermon by saying, what should we do? And Peter says to them in verse 38, to repent and to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then if you go back to Matthew... The end of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus is just about to leave and go back to his Father, and he shares these words, which I'm sure you've heard many times. Matthew, chapter 28, starting with verse number 19, he tells those disciples, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so, the message could not be to infants because the message is to go make disciples. And you can't make a disciple out of an infant because they cannot learn at that point. So the message has to be for those that are of such accountable age that they know what you're talking about and know how to believe in Jesus. You know, no one says that it's, that it's wrong to baptize by immersion. And that is what we do here at Chester Christian Church. And a fourth thing that characteristic of the New Testament church that we follow is we celebrate the Lord's Supper every day, every week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, there's two scriptures we'll talk about here. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem and he stops at the church at Ephesus that we've talked about already and he meets with them and has a long time of, he, he hopes to see them again, but we know he never sees them again. And it's a very tearful thing as he meets with the leaders of the church for a time. But he said that on the first day of the week, they met together to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. Now, that phrase, to break bread, has two different meanings. It can mean to sit down and have a meal, uh, much like we would do at our homes or we do occasionally here at church, but it can also mean the Lord's Supper. Now, what day of the week did they meet on? The first day of the week, which is Sunday, the day that we worship on. And then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 26, Paul is now... Uh, giving a lesson in Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. and There were some problems in the Corinthian church. Goodness, there was a church that had problems. All the way through 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the problems that they're having. But he talks about the Lord's Supper, and he says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The King James says, For as often... As you do this. 
So, what's the least time that we should do the Lord's Supper when we meet together corporately on the Lord's Day or on the first day of the week that we do the Lord's Supper? And that's what we do here. Now, some would say, oh, you know, that, just, that gets old. You're doing it over and over again each week. Well, let me ask this question. Wives, do you ever get tired of hearing your husband tell you that he loves you? And husbands, do you ever get tired of hearing your wife say that you love, that they love you? And parents, do you ever get tired of telling your children or your grandchildren? Children, do you ever get tired of hearing it from those that love you? No, we don't, do we? So why would we make the Lord's Supper mundane and just something, let's get it, let's get it done. No, no one says that it's wrong to have weekly communion. And then a fifth thing that characteristic of what we do patterning ourselves after the New Testament church is that we have elders and deacons that oversee the spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, the spiritual and the physical areas of the church. We have a number of different words for elder. Pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop, they all describe the same work. Now, I stand before you personifying the word elder, which means older, okay? Uh, a pastor, that's someone who shepherds and takes care of the sheep. An overseer, that's exactly what it is, someone who sees over the flock. And a bishop, again, someone who presides over the congregation. They all describe the same function, but have different characteristics. And then uh, for the deacon, uh, a, a, another word could be used for deacon would be that of servant, describing the same function. The spiritual qualifications are set forth in the Scripture, not just in one place, not just a couple things. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about the qualifications for elders and for deacons. He does so again in Titus chapter 1 uh, to Titus. Uh, he says to Timothy to set apart uh, elders in every city as you go through those towns that they might once you leave, that they might take care of the church. And then uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, talks about the qualities or qualifications of those that would shepherd the church. You know, no one says that it's wrong to have elders and deacons to grow the church. So, we hear, at, and there's many more. We could, we could stay here like Paul did at the church to Ephesus where he preached till midnight. No, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, we're just about to finish up. But no one says that it's wrong to have uh, these things that we've mentioned. The New Testament plea is a very simple plea. It's not complicated. You don't have to look into a set of rules and regulations to see how we govern things and how we do things. If simply to turn to the Scripture 
and what the Scripture teaches, uh, especially out of the book of Acts, because that's where we get uh, visual looks at what the church and individual churches were like back then. George Barna uh, has done a number of surveys uh, about religious things across America, and in the surveys he, he's done that during the the 2000s, from 2000 up to the present day, do you know what the fastest growing group of churches in the United States has been? It's been the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ, just like this congregation is. Now, there's a church over Mechanicsville. Matter of fact, there's a couple churches that are similar to us, but they don't make up rules for what we do here at Chester Christian Church, nor do we make up rules, but we have a very similar faith. It's really something that's very simple. Uh, In talking with Aaron, when new folks come here, one of the things that they're thrilled to hear is that we preach from the Bible and what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. Very important uh, that we don't go by what man says uh, somebody used to talk about borrowing a lot of stuff for sermons, and I can remember saying, all my sermons are borrowed. Borrow them right from that book right there. And that's the best thing that we can do because why? That's the foundation. If you don't have a good foundation, what happens? It crumbles, doesn't it? And falls. I remember saying, not long after I became a Christian, and began learning. Uh, I didn't know what the restoration movement was. Uh, I knew nothing about it. Uh, I really learned after I went to college. But I have always said, and I will always continue to say, that I want to be part of a church that follows what the Scripture says and what the Scripture teaches. And if I ever find a church or group of churches that are closer to what the Scriptures are, then what I'm doing, I want to be a part of that. And I hope that you say the same thing. I hope this has not been a, uh, a boring history lesson that you might have disliked when you were in school, but you learned just a little bit about who we are and what we do because it's to His honor and it's to His glory. Uh, it, it, had it not been for a classmate and his preacher, and an evangelist that preached a gospel message, I might not be standing here today. So I thank them in my past. We're going to have a decision time here uh, in just a little bit. Uh, That's an old phrase from back when I was preaching full-time. I hope every one of you make decisions on what you're going to do that This is not your service. We're in a worship time. This is not a worship service that, okay, I did my service for the week and now I'm gone. No, your service starts once we go out there. Thank you for your attention.